so encouraging for us as God's people. <clears throat> but uh, before I read to you, let me lead you in prayer. Let's pray. Father and our God, we thank you for these offerings that we bring. We ask that you be pleased to use it to extend your kingdom. We thank you as we have sung that the Lord Jesus and his name is above all names and that he is Lord and he is King. And as we come to consider this chapter this morning, we pray that the truths about the Lord Jesus and his ruling and his reigning might be brought home to our hearts and our minds, that we might indeed see him in the text, and in so doing that it might bring forth praise from our lives. So bless us, we pray, speak into our lives, and indeed achieve your purpose in and through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the problems with not uh, preaching every week is that we might tend to lose track of where we are. So if I can just take two minutes to summarize what we've been looking at. We've been informed about the churches in the early uh, chapters of Revelation and the pressure that the churches were under to compromise. Chapter 5 onwards took us into the heavenly throne room and there we see God on his throne and those gathered there who had be, who, whom the Lord Jesus the lamb had purchased by the shedding of his blood. The seals uh, were then opened and the seven trumpets sounded and there's an unleashing of evil powers from the pit of hell, as it were. And we realized and we read in the text that God had sealed his people and that's how you and I will survive in all that's taking place in our world today because God has set his seal upon us. But here now from chapter 12 onwards, we are taken behind the scenes as it were, and we realize that all the evils and the troubles in our world, and more particularly in the church, is responsible, uh, that there's someone responsible for it. And we'll look at uh, what the text has to say about the church's true enemy, your enemy and my true enemy, isn't impersonal random things that happen from day to day. Rather, it's very personal because Satan, the evil one, is behind it all. So let's read from the text and then we'll come and look at it. Please keep your Bibles open or your phone or your tablets as we go through the text and follow what uh, this chapter has to say to us. This is God's word. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were, di uh, were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour him. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, 
and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male, male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Amen. We sing the song before the throne of God above from time to time. And one of the verses in, the song, in that song goes like this. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there, the Lord Jesus, who made an end to all my sin. Those are words which every Christian should take to heart in our battle to live the Christian life. That's one of the truths that come to us from the text this morning. It tells us that we have a great accuser before God, an accuser who accuses us day and night, unrelenting, and brings charges against us, reminding us of our past sin and so on. Why is the world as it is? Here in chapter 12, it answers that question by revealing that behind it all, in fact, behind all that has been revealed so far in the previous chapters, and behind all that we perceive with our natural senses, rages an ancient spiritual battle that is invisible to your eyes and to mine. Well, let's look at the chapter. Can you bring up the slide, please, uh, Jack? Firstly, there's an introduction to the text. Secondly, we want to look at identity, then interaction, and, and the important lessons from the text. Firstly, the introduction to the text, very briefly. So far in chapters 1 to 11, we've been dealing with the life of the church under a sovereign God and a triumphant Lamb, who alone is worthy to open the scroll and the seven seals. The chapters have highlighted the opposition, the sufferings, and in some situations, the unfaithfulness 
of the church. We saw that as we looked at the seven churches of the Revelation. But prominent in the book is the persecution of God's people. And this chapter reveals who it is who's behind it all. Satan hates God's people and he uses people who also hate Jesus and the gospel in order to achieve his ends. But what's more telling is that in the process he destroys the people he uses to do his work. People believe the lies that he gives them as they seek to destroy God's people, the church of the Lord Jesus. But in the process, we recognize that they destroy themselves for all eternity. And so here we are taken behind the scenes and given some insight into why it is the church has struggles here in this, in this life, why it is that the Christian has struggles with sin and conflict in his or her life, why it is that gospel ministry is so difficult as it brings struggles and conflict, not just from outside the church, but also within the church. Here in the text, we understand something about our life on earth and all the troubles and difficulties we go through. What the text highlights is that behind our struggles, behind our disappointments, behind our sinful failures, lies the accuser. But more than that, because John also tells us something about the forces that are at work in our world, tearing it apart, and why it is that so much sin and unrighteousness is present in our world. So look secondly at the identity of the woman, the child, and the dragon. Someone said to me, oh, look, you've got the woman in your text. It's Mother's Day. You could uh, you know, use it as a Mother's Day sermon. But that's far from what the text is saying. <laughs> John says, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. John sees a sign in heaven, he says. And most see this heaven as referring to not so much as a place, but what we might call the spiritual dimension of our lives. And I say that because literally it cannot be heaven because the dragon confronts the woman there and, it, and it's a place of war as, the, as we understood from the text. But John tells us something about this woman and in what he has to say we, realizes that, we realize that he uses symbolism as he does throughout the book. He presents her as beautiful, clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head and she is pregnant. <clears throat> the language, as I said, is symbolic, reminding us also of Joseph's dream. If you remember back in Genesis 37, where Joseph sees the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down before him. But here in the text, John isn't speaking, nor does he have in mind a particular woman, because he speaks of her in terms of a sign. The Catholic Church, of course, sees this woman as referring to Mary, but as John says, it's a sign, indicating that it points to a reality. You might, if you know John's Gospel, John uses the word sign to speak of the miracles of Jesus. Why? Because it points to the reality. His miracles points to the reality of who Jesus is. And so here he uses uh, this woman 
as a sign. And what's he saying? He's saying, and I'll explain that in a moment, that it's symbolic of the Old Testament faithful people of God. I say that because the 12 stars identify it as being the sons, the 12 sons of Jacob, of Israel, God's covenant people. And yet this isn't to be understood as national Israel, but rather spiritual Israel or believing Israel. But it's not confined to believing Israel only because the woman ultimately represents all the people of God. Look at verse 17. When the dragon or Satan cannot destroy her child, he wages war against the rest of her seed or children. In other words, both believing Jew and Gentile, the rest of her seed. And so she represents the church of God here in the text, the Lord's people from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old Israel, spiritual Israel, and the new Israel as well, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's who the woman represents. What of the child that's spoken of here? We read in verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child who was to rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Now, no doubt that is referring to the Lord Jesus. And we could refer to it as the text does. She gave birth to a son. It's some, some overtones of the Christmas story, isn't it? But it's the Christmas story with a twist. It's not the cute, cuddly baby Jesus that's spoken of here, um, as we tend to do during Christmas time. This baby is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. Why do I say that? Because he rules the nation with an iron scepter, verse 5. Uh, this is a quote from Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm that points to Jesus, speaking of Israel's Messiah. Secondly, if you look at chapter 19 and verse 15, it confirms that this child is the Lord Jesus, because there the rider on a white horse, whose name is faithful and true, and the word of God, he rules the nation also with an iron scepter as does the child spoken of here in the text, who will bring judgment when he returns. And here's the reason, isn't it, why the dragon, spoken of in verse 3, wages war, not only against the woman, but against the child as well. He wants to destroy the child. He is an adversary of the child and the woman or the church. And I'll come back to that at a moment, uh, in a moment. Now there's three of them mentioned and thirdly of course it's the dragon and he of course is Satan, the devil. Again he's spoken of in symbolic terms and is referred to by many names. I don't know if you picked that up when I was reading the text. The seven heads speak of the cunning wisdom of that belongs to him. The ten horns symbolize his great power. The seven crowns or diadems, his authority to influence others. It speaks of his world domain and his influence. In verses 7 to 9, there are many names that are used for him, again to highlight the character of the dragon. He is an ancient serpent. A serpent. Our mind goes back to Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? He is referred to as the serpent again in verse 14. He tempts us to sin and break God's law. He is called the devil in verse 9. Uh, from which we get our word diabolical, speaking of one who slanders another or harms another. He's also referred to as Satan 
meaning adversary or enemy who leads the whole world astray. So that's the dragon that's spoken of. And look at verse 4, it says, The dragon's tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. Now what is that speaking? What's that speaking of? The stars are angels who together with Satan were thrown out of heaven before man was created. Why? Because they rebelled against God. And that's why they are referred to, as we do, as fallen angels who now are a, dynamic, a demonic army. So that's the woman, the child, and the dragon. Now let's go to the text and look at the interaction between them in verses 7 to 17. The, chapter, the, chap, the focus of the chapter is primarily on this interaction between the woman and the child. And seeing that the woman represents the Lord's own people from the Old and New Testaments, it highlights for us the constant attacks, doesn't it? The constant opposition the people of God are faced with throughout history. So for example, all the frustrations, all the wars and the attacks that Israel went through, such as their bondage in Egypt uh, and being overthrown by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and so on, were ultimately the work of the dragon. Now I recognize that scripture tells us that it is God who sent them into exile. It is God who punished them by sending them into exile and so on. But you see their disobedience and their rebellion was Satan working through them. He was working behind the scenes, warring against the people of God, seeking to devour them as verse 4 tells us. And here's one reason uh, he's described as the red dragon. It's because red depicts war. Take your mind back to chapter 6. You may recall the seven horsemen of the apocalypse that the red driver, a red rider, was the one who brought war upon the earth. And so the text says the dragon stands before the woman in order to devour the child as soon as he was born. It's very striking imagery, isn't it? The woman faces this attack when she is at, at her most vulnerable moment and both she and the child are pictured as being here in great danger. The NIV says in verse 4, so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Now, if you take your mind back again to the Christmas narrative, you probably recognize that it could be referring in part to something we are told about the Christmas narrative where Satan through Herod seeks to destroy the baby. And there again, Satan works through Herod seeking to get rid of the child. However, she gives birth to the child and this child is to rule the nations with an iron scepter and we are told he is snatched up to God and to his throne. Verse 5. Jesus was born he was caught up to God, his ascension, and he shares in the rule and authority of God on his throne. And we've seen that in the previous chapters. Jesus who reigns as king and who will return as the judge of all the earth. He will rule with an iron scepter. And so it's saying, isn't it, that Satan or the dragon cannot frustrate 
the purposes of God in the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus. He could not destroy the promised seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, who triumphed over him and won the victory for his people. And seeing that the dragon could not destroy the child, what does he do? He turns to the woman in his fury. And so she flees to the desert where she is protected by God for a period of 1260 days. Now we've, we've come across that previously so I'm not going to say any more on it except to say that we're speaking here about the time between the first and the second coming of the Lord Jesus. John is showing that the same period is being symbolized throughout these chapters. And so what these chapters have shown is that the period of time not only highlights the persecution of the church, but it highlights something else too, doesn't it? It tells us about the fact that God keeps his church. The dragon cannot destroy the woman. Try as he might. You might remember chapter 11 with the measuring of the temple. God's people are within the temple and protected from the unbelievers who are in the outer court of the temple. So what I'm saying is that this time period speaks not only of the church's trouble, but also of the care and protection of God for his church. Satan cannot destroy the seed of the woman. Throughout history, the church has been through persecution in one form or another, but the Lord has made sure that it still remains well alive and well. No one can destroy the church of the Lord Jesus and that's very evident. We go through troubles, we go through trials and so on, but we also know God's care and protection of us as he keeps his people. Verse 7 to 12 highlights the same battle but from a different perspective. Look at verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now, although that event took place before creation, as I've pointed out before, what the text is doing here from verses 7 onwards is that it brings that event forward to depict Satan's total defeat through the work of Jesus on the cross. The dragon is thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Verse 9. Here's a commentary on Genesis 3.15. Where the seed of the woman bruises the head of Satan. It's a picture of Satan's defeat that took place on the cross. He has been hurled down. He's been thrown down. He's lost his place as the accuser of God's people. Even though he continues his accusing work. And of course, uh, Satan's ultimate defeat will come when he will be thrown with the host of angels that belong to him into the like of fire. But that's yet to come in the, in the chapters to follow. That's the time spoken about in verse 10 when it says, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. It marks the coming of the kingdom of Jesus and his authority. Now we're told that Michael and his angels war against the dragon and his evil host in verse 7. 
This war in heaven is a moral and legal war. It's reminiscent of a courtroom scene because Satan stands as the accuser of God's people, the prosecutor, if you like. But he is defeated by Michael and his angels. Michael represents the defense barrister, if I can put it that way. And the symbolism of this verse makes it clear that Satan has been expelled from the divine court of justice. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He brings accusation against the people of God day and night. It's unrelenting. He will constantly accuse us of our sins and our failures before God. But he is not successful. Why? Because God in Christ will fulfill all that Israel was called to be. God in Christ will fulfill all that you and I are called to be as his people. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, says the apostle? It's God who justifies. And so Satan, try as he might, as he does even today, he cannot make any accusation stick. The finished work of Jesus has been applied to all God's people. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. And I'll come back to that in a moment. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And so John breaks out in this wonderful verse. He says, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Notice how Satan's destruction is referred to as going down. He went down in being cast out of heaven. He went down at the cross where he was defeated by the finished work of Christ. And he is finally going down when Jesus comes again to claim his bride. Verse 13 says the woman is pursued by the dragon. Why? To destroy her. But she flies on eagle's wings. Now where does that come from? It's an imagery, isn't it? That's borrowed from the Exodus, where God's people are protected by Pharaoh. And what did Pharaoh try to do? He tried to destroy God's people. And God says to them, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Israel is fed. It's looked after by God in the wilderness. And so also God will continue to protect his people, to protect his church from the schemes of the devil and from his fury. Yes, it doesn't mean that we won't suffer, that we won't face persecution and so on. But you know that in the midst of it all, God will keep us for all eternity. <clears throat> And that truth is seen again in verse 15. We're told that the serpent spewed water from his mouth so that the woman would be swept away with the flood. We saw in chapter 11 in Revelation that what comes out of the mouth symbolizes words and its power. Fire flows out of the mouth of the two witnesses, if you remember, and devours their enemies speaking about their words, which has the power to overcome those who oppose the truth of God. 
And so here the floodwaters speak of the deceptive teaching that will come from the dragon's mouth as it seeks to deceive the church, as it seeks to destroy the woman. So many heresies have flooded the church, haven't they, over the years? Both in times past, in church history, and even today. False teaching, heretical teaching. It's Satan's attempt to sweep the church away. And maybe that's, why the, that's the reason why the dragon is referred to as the serpent. Because it was the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. But you see, Satan's efforts will come to nothing because the Lord will protect his people from the dragon's deceptive words. He will keep his church. We are told that the earth swallowed up the river of lies that the serpent brought out of his mouth. Indeed, every river of deception, every river of false teaching can never ultimately take God's people captive. The church continues to exist. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him, says the prophet Isaiah. The Lord will keep his own and will protect his own, not on not primarily from physical violence, because we know many have suffered persecution throughout the years, but definitely from spiritual destruction. No one can ultimately destroy God's people, not by persecution, not by heresies or any other means, because we have been bought with a price and we belong to him, as we sang in that song a few moments ago. The chapter ends by telling us that the devil turns his attention to those who obey and keep God's command. Speaking of the wider church, the New Testament church, he will attack them through the beast who is going to be introduced to us in the next chapter, who is about to rise from the sea. When his deceit fails, he will seek to persecute the people of God who hold to the testimony of Jesus in their lives. And we'll come to that in the next chapter. Well, what does all this say to us today? I just want to highlight a couple of truths. And that is, firstly, I see in this passage that the gospel and our witness to it may at times prove to be very costly. The text highlights that. Look at verse 11. It says that in overcoming the evil one through the finished work of Jesus, that it could also bring with it a cost. Why? For they loved not their lives even unto death. Revelation constantly brings before us the fact that our witness for Jesus will be costly. When we looked at chapter 2, for example, Jesus called the believers there to be faithful even unto death. Be willing to die for me, he says, and I will give you a crown of life. When the Lamb opened the fifth seal in chapter 6, he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the witness that they had maintained. And it was also through suffering that the Lord Jesus, the Lamb, conquered, did he not? Did he not? So not only did he call, does he call on his people to be willing to suffer for his name, but he sets the example himself through his suffering. He is our example. The call of the gospel is to take up your cross and be willing to follow him 
It's not going to be an easy law. It's not going to be a walk in the park, is it? And if that means that we are to pay the price of persecution and even martyrdom, as many of God's people around the world have done, then we do so recognizing the truth of the gospel is a cost worth paying for. At our Connect group on Friday, we finished with the question, an interesting question, and the question was this, what would you be prepared to die for? What would you be prepared to die for? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Ask yourself that question. Because you see, witnessing for Jesus brings a cost with it. After all, all too often we want to be in, uh, involved in witnessing, we want to be involved in sharing the gospel and so on, but do we recognize that it can and it will bring a cost with it? It may be through speaking the gospel into people's lives, and it might be that people reject both you and the gospel as well. It may be by, st for, by standing up for gospel truth in a society and culture that's anti-God and anti-gospel. For example, the Bible's view on gender. How would you cope with that? With what's going on in our society today? There will be rejection. It will come with a cost. It may be seeking to live a consistent Christian life in the, in the marketplace where people consider you to be weird or irrelevant because you go to church, because you're a Christian, because you believe the Bible and you want to stand up for Christian principles and so on. Being a witness is one of the most difficult mandates to fulfill in our culture. We are plagued with feelings of fear and inadequacy, concerned about how we will be perceived among our workmates and those whom we rub shoulders with and so on. And when we come to a passage like this and we see that God's people are to be a witness for Jesus and the gospel, and it will bring with it persecution in one form or another, then we realize that our fears are real, aren't they? We know that all too often that people will reject the gospel and they will reject us as well. Christians have been shunned, they've been, they've been ostracized, they've been imprisoned, and at times even have to pay the ultimate price. And yet we persevere. Why? Because we want to. We have a desire, or at least we should have a desire, to, and a heart to see people come to know and to love the Lord Jesus. And why is this so difficult? Simply because every believer has an enemy who works against his or her resolve to live for Christ and seeks to destroy their commitment to him. Here's one reason why we struggle to be a witness and in fact, why we struggle with sin in our own lives. The passage gives us the answer to that question. It tells us that the ultimate reason as to why you and I find it so difficult to live a Christian, disciplined Christian life, why we struggle to pray, why we struggle to read our Bible, why we have conflict in our lives, why we mess up with relationship, in our relationship with others, why doing gospel work is so difficult. It gives us the reason. It tells us that ultimately we have Satan working against us. I say ultimately because there are times when uh, we can blame ourselves, really, where we make a mess of things. Because of the sin within us, we do and say things uh, that are stupid and irrelevant at times. 
However, the text tells us who is behind it all. The dragon, as it spews out deception and lies through any means possible, verse 15, as he rages against the, God, against the people of God, verse 17. And it's been that way throughout the history of the church. The Apostle Paul acknowledged it, did he not, in his ministry? In 1 Thessalonians 2, he tells us of his frustrations in his work and that it was Satan behind it all. Paul wants to visit the believers at Thessalonica and he says, we wanted to come to you, but again and again, he says, Satan stopped us. He doesn't say how Satan did it, but it opens our eyes to the fact that our adversary, the devil, is at work against us. In other words, living the Christian life is such a battle, and it is that way because the dragon is working against us. And his one goal, his one aim, is to seek to destroy the work of the cross, the work of the gospel, and destroy the faith of God's people. So also, he is behind the persecution of God's people. Peter tells us that the devil, our enemy, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, to devour spiritually or even physically through persecution, suffering or death. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, says the apostle, but against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So here's the battle that this chapter highlights. My friends, although we know these things, we need to be alert to the fact and recognize the source of every temptation that we face, and we should seek to resist him. And one way we do that is through Christ and the gospel that we believe and hold to. Look at verse 11. It tells us that God's people overcame him, that is Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. One of the strategies Satan uses against us is to remind us of our sins and our, our, and our failings, our sinfulness. He wants to bring our past sins to mind and drag us down in our Christian walk and cause us to live defeated lives and lose the enthusiasm and the resolve we have to live for Jesus. Well, here's the answer to that. It's what God has done in Jesus Christ. We remind him that Satan has defeated him on the cross through the shedding of his blood. And Satan hates the blood of Jesus. Um, he hates the work of the cross because we are told that God has raised the standard against him. And nothing he can do or remind us of can take away from the fact that God has forgiven us. He's forgiven of our, given us of our sins. He's wiped the slate clean. And that stands forever when you belong to Christ. That when the Lord sets his seal upon you and forgives you and claims you for his own, it's not just for today or for the next week. It's for all time. He will keep us for all eternity because he has claimed us for our own. Your future is secure if you know Jesus and his blood covers your life. You don't need to worry about your past sins. They've been dealt with because you are forgiven. The slight has been wiped clean. So Satan can accuse us as much as he likes. 
but we will point to the fact that the blood of the Lamb has cleansed us. So my friends, remind Satan of his future as he reminds you of your past. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Those words are true. Take it, use it, claim it, and live your lives as you continue to do battle against the evil one because Jesus has overcome him through his shed blood. And then finally, notice the second area, that we overcome him by the word of our testimony, verse 11. Now is that saying that we overcome the devil because we have a testimony, as we tend to use the word testimony, you know, how we came to know Christ and what Jesus has done in our life and so on and so forth. That's not the case, as important as that might be. The, what's meant here is the testimony of the gospel. The word testimony here is singular. There is only one testimony in Revelation that is significant, and that is the testimony of Jesus. In other words, the passage tells us that we overcome Satan and his temptations through belief in the gospel. The life, the death, the resurrection and ascension and the coming again of Jesus Christ. That's how we overcome the evil one. By believing what the scripture says and taking it to heart and living the gospel in our day and time. That's what will sustain us in the midst of all the frustrations and sufferings of life. The finished work of Jesus is the reason for our victory. And so we sang the song, it was finished upon the cross. And there are words that were said from the cross, wasn't it? Tetelestai, it is accomplished, it is finished. Father, what, I, what you sent me to do has been accomplished. And it's also belief in the gospel that will keep you fighting sin. Or at least it should. It's because you know and love Jesus and are grateful for his death on your behalf, for rescuing you from death and hell, because that will stand as a deterrent of giving into temptation. You will constantly say to yourself, I have been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus who died for me and went through agony and hell for me. So how can I give in to the devil and his evil temptations to bring me to sin against the one who is my savior? My friends, we live constantly, each moment of each day, in the presence of God, do we not? We live quorum Deo, to use a Latin phrase. We live before the face of God. We live in the presence of God. We live for an audience of one. To quote R.C. Sproul, he says, The essence of Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and for the glory of God. So my friends, leave here this morning in the knowledge that the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, cleanses us from all our sin. It also heals our troubled conscience, because we know that by his death, our sin has been atoned for, totally. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, and I quote, 
we should use the doctrine of the atonement not as a pillow to rest our weariness, but as a weapon to subdue our sin, unquote. The passage has brought before us the fact that we have an adversary, the devil, who works against us in our fight and our resolve to live for Jesus in our world. But Satan is a defeated foe, and in the light of what we are told about the evil one in his activities of the text, may I send you away with this text this morning, that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is the Lord Jesus in you than Satan who is in the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. We thank you that they belong to us in belonging to you, our God, through Christ. And we pray that these truths might sustain us in our walk with Jesus, that as we seek to live for him in our day and time, that we might indeed be encouraged, that we might be strengthened, that we might have the power to live for him in our difficult time. We pray in his wonderful name. Amen.